time is now 6 o'clock. Welcome to WORT's local news for Tuesday, September 12th. I'm your host, Christian Knudsen. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. In tonight's news, Dane County's 2024 budget negotiations kick off with a public hearing. A Milwaukee teacher whose video was used without her knowledge describes her brush with conservative outrage. And in the second half, Cardinal Call returns for the fall semester and Wildlife Weekly takes a look at the nocturnal nightjar. All these stories and more on tonight's news. This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Indigenous nations in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Minnesota are looking to block construction of a natural gas-fired power plant on the shores of Lake Superior. According to the Associated Press, tribal governments in the three states have submitted a request to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, asking them not to grant a $350 million public loan to Dairyland Power Cooperative to help finance the plant. The tribes say building a new fossil fuel burning facility is, quote, unconscionable, unquote, in the face of intensifying climate change. The utility argues natural gas is a necessary source of energy while transitioning to more renewable sources. The plant would be located near the city of Superior in northwest Wisconsin. The total cost of the project is estimated at $700 million. A local official in western Wisconsin is planning to run for the U.S. Senate. WKBT-TV reports that Trembolo County board member Stacey Klein filed to run as a Republican against Democratic U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin in 2024. Klein joins another relatively unknown Republican candidate looking to unseat the two-term incumbent. Several prominent Wisconsin Republicans, including two members of the state's congressional delegation, said they won't run for the Senate seat. The ongoing power struggle over the Wisconsin Supreme Court could be headed to the Wisconsin Supreme Court. A group of voters filed a lawsuit this week asking the court to prevent Republican lawmakers from impeaching liberal justice Janet Protasiewicz, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. Republicans in the legislature recently floated the idea of impeachment if Protasiewicz doesn't recuse herself in upcoming cases involving redistricting. They argue comments she made during her campaign about district maps prevent her from being impartial, even though she did not state how she would rule on any case. The lawsuit contends impeachment would be a violation of the state constitution that would, quote, nullify the vote, unquote, of more than a million residents who backed Protasiewicz in 2023. Her election in April gave control of the court to liberals for the first time in 15 years. Meanwhile, an analysis from the Associated Press finds that both liberal and conservative candidates for the Wisconsin Supreme Court have often made public statements about politically contentious subjects in recent years. Wisconsin Assembly Republicans unexpectedly introduced a plan to overhaul the way the state draws its legislative district maps. This afternoon, lawmakers unveiled the proposal to create a so-called Iowa-style nonpartisan redistricting commission, Wisconsin Public Radio reports. Under their new plan, a nonpartisan body would draw legislative maps, while lawmakers would have the final sign-off. Republican Assembly Speaker Robin Voss says he hopes to fast-track the proposal to have it implemented in time for the 2024 elections. Democratic Governor Tony Evers quickly issued a statement questioning the plan, saying Republicans, quote, cannot be trusted to oversee fair maps. Wisconsin's legislative district maps have been a source of fierce political debate and litigation in recent years. Many redistricting experts have found the state's current Republican-drawn maps to be among the most gerrymandered in the country. 
The Republican-controlled state assembly passed a state income tax cut proposal today, reports the Associated Press. The proposal would use some of the state's $4 billion projected surplus to drop most people's tax rate from a rate of 5.4% to a rate of 4.4%. This bill would also exempt the first $150,000 of retirement accounts from state income tax. Governor Evers has opposed this proposal and has said he would veto it if Republicans don't come to the table on some of his priorities. These include putting more funding toward the UW system and toward the child care crisis, where supportive funding is expected to run out at the end of the year. An embattled Northwoods Brewing Company says it's opening a second space on Madison's east side. The Monaco Brewing Company, whose progressive-branded beers include Biden Beer, Bernie Brew, Tammy Shandy, and Kamala Stout, is in the midst of a lawsuit with the town of Monaco and Oneida County over zoning restrictions. Monaco Brewing maintains that those zoning restrictions are selectively enforced and amount to political harassment. Now the head of the left-leaning brewery and a former Democratic candidate for state assembly, Kirk Bainstad, has turned his attention to opening a taproom in Madison, next to Trixie's Liquor on East Washington Avenue. Bainstad tells the Wisconsin State Journal he plans to open the doors of his Madison tasting room by November or December. The project to consolidate the Dane County Jail into an approximately 149,000 square foot six-story facility is lurching forward. Today, Dane County Sheriff Kelvin Barrett announced that the county is now seeking bids from contractors. The application, which is posted online, will remain open until mid-November. This posting asks candidates to indicate the time it will take to complete two main phases of the project, the construction of a new tower and the partial remodel of the existing public safety building. According to the job postings timeline, a facility tour with applicants is scheduled for late October. This application closes in mid-November. Groundbreaking for the first phase of the project is then expected to take place in early 2024. Summer is almost over, but the slip and slide continued yesterday on East Johnson Street. A slippery substance plagued the street main thoroughfare on Monday around rush hour, causing the street to be temporarily blocked off and redirected to East Washington. The fluid, initially reported to be an unknown slippery substance, is suspected to have been hydraulic fluid from a large vehicle, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Madison police temporarily shut down traffic on East Johnson Street as sweepers from the city streets division soaked up the fluid and reopened just before 5 p.m. yesterday. And now on to today's top stories. Budget season is officially underway in Dane County, and the Board of Supervisors is digging in on reviewing departmental budget requests. County agencies are requesting funding for everything from a new Reedmobile to a new emotional support dog. Last night marked the Board's first public hearing, the beginning of a budget process that will extend late into the fall. WORT News producer Faye Parks has a rundown of the hearing. Yesterday evening, the Dane County Board of Supervisors held the first of two departmental budget hearings. The supervisors heard numerous proposals from departments like the district attorney, sheriff, medical examiner, public health, and university extension. The detailed requests from this year range from new equipment and new employees to brand new facilities. Some examples. The Dane County Library Service is looking to replace their Readmobile, a van that makes library materials available to at-risk children to the tune of $400,000. The Department of Administration is seeking funding to update their county facilities from $859,000 to replace lighting in the city-county building to $150,000 to replace the carpet in the courthouse. 
They're also hoping to beef up their IT infrastructure, asking for $825,000 for audiovisual conferencing projects, $360,000 for upgrading network infrastructure, and $120,000 for cybersecurity. Similarly, Family Court Services is also hoping to update their facilities and database software. Their current software has been ineffective thus far as they try to carry out day-to-day -day procedures. Supervisor Rochelle Andre of the Hill Farms in Shorewood area is the chair of the board's Public Protection and Judiciary Committee. She says that two newly proposed positions in the district attorney's office could have a serious impact. One is a data analyst, so that's one that's been introduced previously for consideration as a high priority. And then the public information officer has also come up in the past and would be a primary point of contact for members of the public and the media when there are requests or incidents going on. Last night, D.A. Ozan shared an example where there was a critical incident and there wasn't an appropriate point of contact for media. It, some of the calls were being triaged through actual social workers and others in the department. So it would be a better way to be able to address those through a, a central primary contact in the D.A.'s office. And that's a, that's a reasonable request for a department that size. Hiring a data analyst or IT specialist could cost $100,000. Their responsibility would be to assist different law enforcement agencies cooperating across the county and sharing information. A new communications position would cost $113,000, but would fill a public relations gap in the DA's office at a time when, quote, mass casualty events are unfortunately common, unquote. And hiring isn't limited to humans. The DA's victim witness unit is looking to hire a facilities dog to support victims and witnesses during testimony. The new hire would replace Teddy, the retired facility dog at Safe Harbor Child Advocacy Center, which will not continue to fund the dog. Amy Brown is the unit's director, and she says that a facilities dog can go a long way in comforting people while they give their statements. Well, I think it just helps them feel protected and relaxed. It gives them, you know, a friendly dog to sit next to, to snuggle up to, to pet as they're talking. I think we've seen it in our practice here, we've seen people feel really soothed by that. We also know there's research that supports that as well. The new facility's dog would cost between $5,000 and $10,000, mostly in order to train its handlers. The county board will resume the second half of budget hearings tomorrow evening, starting at 6 p.m., and this time we'll hear from agencies including the airport, Henry Vilas Zoo, county clerk, and county executive. County Executive Joe Parisi is expected to present his spending plan in the coming weeks, kicking off a budget process that is likely to last over the next couple months. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. Yesterday, WORT reported on a political ad that aired after the Green Bay Packers game on Sunday. That ad, which prompted the claim that critical race theory is being taught in schools, is the product of an LLC tied to a Cincinnati-based lawyer. That same lawyer has registered about six dozen other LLCs or nonprofits funding conservative interests and candidates. Angela Harris, a teacher at Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Elementary School in Milwaukee, was featured in the ad without her consent or knowledge. WRT news producer Faye Parks spoke with Harris this afternoon to hear her perspective. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the Afro-American people. Not with my children. It's not going to happen. You can make friends. <laughs> yeah, you can make friends, no matter what color they are. So we need to stop CRT, period, point blank. 
children do not see skin color, man. They love everybody. If they're good people, they love them. The truth wins if we're all brave enough to tell it. All right. What is your reaction to hearing that? Well, my initial reaction is always like, what truth are they talking about? Because there wasn't very much truth told in that commercial or that ad. It's just really sad. As a teacher, you know, as an educator, there's so many things that I have to deal with. And now this is just another layer as I walk into the classroom that I have to think about. And I'm guessing you weren't notified that you'd be in this ad. Is that correct? Absolutely not. I had friends messaging me, sending me text messages, uh, messaging me on social media, saying that they saw me in a commercial. I don't watch a lot of regular TV and I don't watch football. So I would have likely never saw it unless someone would have mentioned it to me like they had. Somebody sent me a like a, a screen recording of their television And I was able to grab the website from the end of the video. And then I actually went to the website myself and saw the YouTube video that they posted on their webpage. This isn't the first time this video's made it in circulation on conservative or right-wing platforms. And so after it happened the first time, I've been very vigilant about locking down social media and kind of wiping my personal information from social media because I was doxxed heavily the first time. And so I've had to put protections in place to kind of prevent that from happening. Oh, so you were you were doxxed. Would you mind walking me through what that was like? What exactly happened? Certainly. So the video was picked up by a group called Libs of TikTok, I believe. Something like that. They have a large Twitter following as well as a large TikTok following. They picked up the video. They shared it within probably 24 hours of the video going up. Folks had already had my first and last name as well as the school the school that I worked at and the grade that I taught. And so folks were contacting the school almost immediately. After that, my home address and my telephone number were posted. So I began to receive phone calls, text messages, actual threats of violence to myself and my family. I received letters sent to my home as well as to my school, threatening my personal safety as well as the safety of my family, threatening my employment, just really anything that you could honestly think of, calling me some very horrible racial slurs and things like that. So it it escalated very quickly. When exactly did this first go viral? When does the video date from? Uh, I believe it was in like February or March of 2022. It was during Black History Month is what I can recall. Do you remember the context of that video, what you'd been discussing in class before then, sort of what the idea was behind uh, that Pledge of Allegiance that you said? So I have to make it very clear that the school that I was at is a African-American immersion school. It is a cultural immersion school. So what that means is the children who attend that school are immersed in Black African culture. It is a part of our curriculum. It is a part of the language that we use with our scholars. There is a, a morning meeting that happens at the beginning of each day. It's called Mbongi. 
So we hold African concepts as a part of our curriculum as well. And during that morning meeting, we say the American Pledge, we say the African Pledge, we talk about our principles, our Kingian values, we say a scholar declaration, and then we just kind of talk about our day and how our day is going to go. So this is something that happens in every single classroom in that building every single day because of the type of school that we are. So it would be no different than a German immersion school singing the the German national anthem or a French immersion school singing the French national anthem. It's just a part of our, our context. And the context of that pledge is to make a commitment to value and honor our culture as black people and to bring goodness and to promote safety in our community. Okay, and what is the student reaction to doing that? Is that something that they enjoy, appreciate? So one of the largest sources of pride, I believe, that any scholar has had at Dr. King and will probably tell you is them being able to lead in Bongi them being able to stand up in front of their peers, their family members, and recite the African Pledge and recite the Scholar Declaration. It's always something that they're excited about. And once they, you know, can learn it and do it on their own, it's something that they want to lead and promote throughout the school. It really builds such a positive school culture, and it gives them such a positive outlook on themselves and what it means to be a black person. Some of the criticism from particularly conservative politicians surrounding instruction on race in school is that it's too sensitive of a topic. um, It can be full of conflict, that kind of thing. How do you adjust your curriculum to work for younger students? I've always been a strong believer in the fact that when children, at whatever age children can experience racism, is an age that they can learn about racism. So my scholars come to me with a set of experiences that they have. That That's not something that I give to them. That's based upon the lives that they live every day. And so they're coming into the classroom wanting to have conversations about themselves. And so I have to provide opportunities for them to do that. An activity that I love to do with them, we talk about like how they feel on the inside versus how they're viewed on the outside. These are all words and concepts and things that they come up with on their own. And it's never anything that I give to them or direct or direct them to do. These are all things and feelings that they have for themselves. And so having conversations like that with all children, I believe, is really important because we may see see folks one way on the outside and they may feel or believe or, or be something totally different on the inside. And so it's really interesting to me that that dad and his daughter are talking about this exact concept right here. But they're leaving out the part where there are some children in the world who do experience racism and who who do know, even at a very young age, that race and color does exist. The banning of, quote, critical race theory instruction 
in states like Florida. This has also been proposed in the Wisconsin legislature. You would see that as sort of shutting off a necessary outlet that students really appreciate being able to talk about their perspectives on life. I don't think that what I just described is critical race theory. Critical race theory is a theory that has been taught in higher education. I, as an educator, never knew anything about critical race theory until I started hearing it on right-wing media outlets. The conversations that we're having in our classrooms are conversations that are based upon lived experiences. That's not critical race theory. That that has absolutely nothing to do with critical race theory. I think that you mentioned earlier about how folks will say that having conversations about these issues are uncomfortable and may cause conflict and all of those things. I think that they are conflating the discomfort with a uh, uh, post secondary education theory that has been taught to lawyers and used in sociology classes, not what we're doing as educators in our classrooms every day. When you yourself were a student, what was your knowledge of African-American history? Was that something that you learned about in school? No. I mean, I took my first African history class when I was uh, in high school. I was in my first class and actually my first black teacher, black male teacher, was my freshman year in high school. The story of American history is told from one perspective. I don't believe that. The way that we teach history and social studies in schools in particular doesn't do a good job of telling both sides of the story. So you will often have things happen like the way that enslavement is described in in social studies curriculums being favorable, right, for people who were enslaved. And we know that to not necessarily be the case. And so at Dr. King, we try to do the job of telling the story of Black folks even prior to enslavement, because there's a part of the story there that also doesn't exist. So a lot of times when we hear about the history of Black folks, it really starts with the story of us being enslaved here in America. And there's so much more to the story of Black folks than just that. Would you say that your perspective has changed over time at all? Oh, I definitely think that my perspective has shifted over time, particularly when I look back on the education that I received and the type of educator that I'm trying to be now. I feel like perhaps at a younger age, if I were able to have some of these difficult conversations. And I I believe this to be true for all of us. I think that we would be in a much different place in terms of what society looks like now, because we would have the capacity to think critically and deeper about these societal issues that exist rather than try to push them under the rug because they make us feel uncomfortable. Anything else you would like to share with our listeners that we haven't touched on yet? You know, I just think that it's important to think about the repercussions of advertisements like this, particularly knowing that I wasn't aware that my face, my image, or my likeness was going to be used and also it's being used to spread a false light and a false narrative and how that can really affect not just 
my employment as an educator, but my personal safety, because these types of topics are really inflammatory. They really are polarizing, and they really pull people in one direction or another. And I I have a job that is difficult enough in itself. Being a teacher in an under-resourced community, I don't need the added pressure of worrying about being accused of teaching critical race theory. Thank you again for speaking with me today. I really appreciate your perspective. All right. Thank you. The time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. A coalition of rural organizations is out with its latest policy recommendations to help small towns thrive. The report says in states like Wisconsin, Main Street businesses need help in fending off a corporate takeover of rural economies. Mike Mullen of the Wisconsin News Connection has the story. Travel through rural parts of Wisconsin and chances are you'll pass a dollar store. A new report says corporate retailers have too much of a presence in smaller communities and that certain policies could help Main Street businesses compete. The 2023 Rural Policy Action Report, which has input from nearly 30 organizations, urges federal policymakers to advance bills that would strengthen antitrust laws in hopes of seeing fewer mergers, including in agribusiness. Katie Milani is with the Independent Business Institute for Local Self-Reliance and contributed to the report. She argues big box chains have been given a lot of flexibility to add stores across rural America. We have seen in the last 50 years significant consolidation in our economy. You go to any town across the country and a lot of them look the same. It's the same dollar stores, the same Walmarts. Milani says these trends push out independent businesses, preventing small towns from taking agency over their ability to flourish. Her group notes the FTC needs stronger enforcement of laws addressing deals bigger retailers get from suppliers, allowing them to mark down prices. Chains like Dollar General defend their growth, saying they often get requests from rural areas for new stores. The report also calls for investment in foundational infrastructure in rural areas, such as health care access. The authors say these communities are more diverse than people think, and residents deserve equitable opportunities. Milani says there are too many questions there that can't be ignored. What does economic racial justice around rural issues and also gender, what does that look like? She says those discussions need to be free of the political divide that often clouds public discourse. The report says protecting democracy and access to voting allows diverse rural communities to have a voice on these matters without intimidation. A recommendation asks the federal government to make bigger investments in election safety and security, noting the burden often falls on state and local governments, some of which lack the resources to block threats. This is Mike Moen for Wisconsin News Connection. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org. It's back to school season. This year, we have two UW-Madison students co-producing Cardinal Call, a feature con- created by student journalists at the Daily Cardinal. Our reporters, Hewan Lim and Gavin Escott, sat down with two executive members of the Daily Cardinal to bring you the scoop on what's been happening on campus. They discussed stories the Cardinal is looking forward to reporting on later this year. Hello, and welcome to the Cardinal Call 
your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm your co-host, Gavin Escott. And I'm your co-host, Hee-Wan Lim. With classes in full swing, the Cardinal is jumping back into its weekly schedule. Today, we're joined by our new editor-in-chief, Drake Whiteberge, and managing editor, Tyler Katzenberger, to preview the fall semester and share updates about the Cardinal. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Could you both introduce yourself and your experience with the Cardinal? My name is Drake Weiberge. I'm the current editor-in-chief of the Daily Cardinal. I've been with the Cardinal for a little over two years now, I believe. I started out as a photographer, and then I became the photo editor for the Daily Cardinal. I transitioned into writing articles while I was photo editor, and then after a gap semester while I was photo editor and I went back down to regular photographer, I was elected editor-in-chief, and that's where we're at now. And I'm Tyler Katzenberger. I'm the managing editor of the Daily Cardinal. Started out as a little wide-eyed freshman a few years back, and I interviewed a third-party presidential candidate, but that made me a little politics junkie. And so I've been the resident politics junkie and then um, now the state news editor this past year uh, before I was elected to managing editor in the spring. Let's go back to last spring. You've just taken over the reins of the Cardinal when a leaked video of a white girl saying racial slurs rocked campus. The Cardinal covered student protests and their demands that the university do more to protect students of color while UW is really using free speech as their defense. How is the Cardinal planning to approach these topics in the upcoming semester? We've consistently over over the summer, we've maintained our eye on, on the involved parties in those protests. UW-Madison administration, the at the time newly formed Black Power Coalition, and we've been trying to maintain our eye on, on the updates. Um, the Chancellor and UW administration and the Black Power Coalition have been having meetings over the summertime to address the issues the Black Power Coalition brought to UW-Madison. So we're keeping an eye on that to see the status of those updates. But recently, uh, the state legislature also cut funding to the UW system for DEI-related positions right around that same time as those protests. The two issues are still very connected at the time that UW-Madison is undergoing you know, these protests. Now, in these issues, the state legislature is trying to force UW to cut DEI funding for diversity, equity, and inclusion. So maintaining an eye on both of these issues is, is, is one of the main ways that we're trying to keep our coverage going forward on, on, on this topic. Yeah. And I mean, we've had multiple different stories from multiple different angles on each topic. And I think the big thing I want to stress for us is accountability. I think the one thing we want to do is when UW administration says that they're going to do something or makes a promise, we're going to be following up on that. So I think the best example of that is back in May. UW administration and Chancellor Mnuchin said that they wanted to meet with the Black Power Coalition. And so this fall, you know, we still weren't exactly sure if that had happened. And so uh, we sent our associate news editor, uh, Jasper Berenstein, to go ask. And he asked at convocation and we found out, yes, um, according to UW leaders, specifically Vice Chancellor for Student Affairs, Lori Reeser, UW leaders have met with the Black Power Coalition on a few separate occasions over the summer. Obviously, you know, we'd love to hear from the Black Power Coalition on exactly how they thought those meetings went. UW said that those meetings went uh, fairly well and said that they were pursuing partnerships partnership with the Black Power Coalition um, for future engagement opportunities. But I think part of that is, is, you know, when UW says they're going to do something or says they want something um, related to this issue, we're going to be following up and making sure that that is actually what happens. Last year was really big on affordable housing, which was really brought to the forefront. How do you think these issues will continue into the new year? Well, there's, you know, in, in Madison, especially downtown, it seems like there's always new housing developments going up. And most of these are labeled as luxury housing, relatively unaffordable for most UW students. Uh, I, I believe it was uh, District 8 Alder MGR put out a thing about a new housing proposal near campus downtown. And, you know, all these are increasingly, you know, coming up. Old housing's getting torn down. 
new housing is being put in, prices are going up, and students are being forced to move further and further away from campus into you know houses with worse and worse conditions. Um, so you know, trying to trying to strike that balance of covering these proposals and these you know new housing developments that are that are driving students away, driving out poor students, um, and making it so that only wealthy students can live you know near campus, live in accessible areas, maintaining that coverage. You know, on on that, you know, make sure it's fair and make sure we're covering not only the fact that these developments are going up, but, you know, the justices and injustices of the, the effects of this housing. And the other part of that, too, is looking at the systemic factors that are behind this housing shortage. I'm, I'm going to be real with students, any students that are listening. These aren't going away fast. Um, you're going to be dealing with housing shortages again this year. The university uh, says that they admitted a class of around 8,000 and have said that it, you know, they were looking to make it a little bit smaller than last year's class. But that's still more people that are going to be looking for housing in probably less, maybe a month, if not just a little more, you know, when the housing scramble begins. And again, it begins so early. But, you know, we keep having students coming on campus. And while developers are building apartments, they are, like Drake said, luxury apartments, and they're not exactly units that everybody can afford. And even some of what's considered affordable is done in a way where it's two beds in one room. So you're sharing a room. And I did that my sophomore year. I don't personally advocate for it. I don't think it's that much to say that having personal space is nice and it just kind of helps you exist as a human being um, and as a college student when things can get very stressful. But I think where I want to take this is that there are a lot of systemic issues at play as to why these buildings are being built and also why there aren't any dorms on campus either to help kind of alleviate the housing shortage. There are rules that are handed down from the state legislature um, about rent controls. For instance, Madison can't really do those. They also can't deny housing projects uh, that aren't affordable enough. A few alders tried to do that this summer and they pulled back on that pretty quickly after they realized that they didn't have the legal standing to do so. And also to construct a new dorm that requires legislative approval in the capital budget too. So there are a lot of systemic factors at play that we're going to be covering. With the 2024 election season right around the corner, the focus is on Wisconsin and on UW-Madison students in particular. Can you give us a picture of how the Cardinal plans to follow politics? I'm really excited about our state news editor this year, Ava Menkes. Obviously, I'm a little bit biased because she was one of my writers last year, and I think we had a fantastic team, and I think we're going to have a great politics team again this year. But our big thing is just being at events when they happen. We've been at the first lady's visit just earlier this month. We were at the vice president's visit this summer. Um, We were at President Joe Biden's visit back in February. You know, when people are come to Wisconsin, we're going to be there, and we're going to be asking them questions when we can. We'll be hopefully at the event that Kamala Harris is going to have um, in the upcoming months. We haven't, we don't have a clear timeline when she'll be here, but she is doing a tour of college campuses that's going to land her at UW-Madison. But also we're going to be doing enterprise coverage and looking at, you know, when leaders in state politics make a decision or candidates in national races decide to target student voters, like we're going to ask, is that working? What are the actual facts and how do students actually feel about what politicians are saying at the state and national level? We, we get that on the ground reporting, but also we will be at the big events with the big names. And if I can add to, I think we plan on focusing on you know the power of the student vote. As, as, as a student newspaper, we saw in the latest election with you know Supreme Court Justice Janet Protasiewicz, you know we saw the power of the student vote. You know students across Wisconsin, you know came out in droves to help put Janet Protasiewicz in office. And Democrats uh, and progressives have realized you know, the power of the of the student vote. And I think you know to an extent, Republicans and conservatives are also at this point they need to get the youth and you know the student vote. Uh, the Cardinal Center 
sent a team of reporters to the Republican debate in Milwaukee uh, a few weeks ago. And while we were there, former Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker was speaking in his capacity as president of, I believe it's called the Young Americas Foundation, conservative youth organization, you know, about you know, things like the student vote and you know, getting young conservatives you know, energized for elections. So we're going to see a lot of emphasis in this upcoming cycle on students and youth and Generation Z and all these young voters who are now turning out and getting politically active. What are some coverage topics you're hoping the Cardinal will prioritize this semester? I think you've covered a few of them already. Those, you know, those really were the big ones. Drake, do you have any topics you're thinking of? The Cardinal last year, we put out an issue called the labor issue, where we focused on, you know, labor unions and organized labor, um, workers' rights, you know, students as employees and things like that. And it, it's one of our goals moving forward to continue that coverage. We don't want that to be a one-issue project where we focus on labor once and move on. Just this week, workers at the State Street Starbucks location went on strike over, you know, severe understaffing and, you know, mismanagement issues and things like that. Covering that, uh, other, you know, unionization efforts throughout the city. I believe it was the CUNA mutual group. Their workers, you know, strike throughout the summer and have been striking for a while for better conditions uh, in Madison. And so, you know, highlighting these efforts, the, the efforts of workers and, you know, labor's rights uh, is one of the things the Cardinal really wants to focus on moving forward. Yeah. And I think the other thing is transparency when it comes to UW budgets. Um, for anybody who wasn't following the news this summer coming out of the state house, um, Republicans really did go after uh, UW's budget, um, particularly over diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. And while UW doesn't have to necessarily cut those programs, they do, for the time being, have to cut $32 million from their budget. And there is a chance for them to get that money back from the legislature's budget writing committee. The only problem with that is that Assembly Speaker Robin Voss has said that he doesn't plan on UW getting back that money until they cut DEI programs. UW has said that they don't want to cut DEI programs, but at the same time, UW has also taken diversity statements off of its applications. UW has also made statements that really seem to placate a lot of conservative concerns about free speech, um, sometimes with belonging included and sometimes with ideas of belonging outside of political affiliation and other very important ways like racial and cultural cultural belonging at UW-Madison campuses, those aren't always included in the statements that UW makes. And so we're going to be following, like, as UW has to cut $32 million over the next two years, where are they going to cut that from? You know, we've seen with UW-Oshkosh, some of that might be from furloughs and layoffs. UW-Madison has to absorb the brunt of this year's budget cut, which I think clocks in at just over $15 million. If I recall right, UW-Madison's share is $7 million of that budget cut. And we're not sure where they're going to cut from yet. So, you know, we're going to be talking to UW officials, like, where do you plan to cut from on that? And and Ava, who I mentioned earlier, and Liam Barron, our campus editor, just put out a kind of a great article on that, you know, looking at some of the inconsistencies and what UW has talked about and how these, you know, requests and demands from the legislature have made things unclear and a little bit murky for chancellors trying to navigate their universities through tight budgets that only keep getting tighter. Is there anything you're specifically excited about for this semester in terms of the Cardinal's operations? Do you have any new plans? And do you see the Cardinal going in any new directions than it's been in previous years? You know, I think the Cardinal has a has a long tradition of being a great, outspoken, values-driven newspaper. And you know, we saw that this past year. We won multiple, you know, statewide and region-wide awards for our coverage. And I think one of the, you know, the biggest things we're excited for is to keep up this great tradition of local coverage focused on, on the important issues that matter most, not only to UW students, but to the community you know, around UW, making sure we focus on 
things like we said before, like diversity and equity and workers' rights and covering these politics and trying to make sure that we're covering not only things that need to be covered, but we're doing it with, with a mindset that you know we're covering it fairly in, in the way that it needs to be covered and not just covering it to cover it. We want our coverage to matter. We want it to make an impact. We want it to resonate with the people who are reading it. So I think one of the things we're excited for is to continue this tradition of, of great coverage. Of sifting and winnowing. This, yes, this tradition <laughs> of sift, sifting and winnowing. I think another key piece of that is getting people on the ground more. As campus has opened up a bit, we've had... Uh, reporters try to go out to more in-person events. And that's something we're really going to be pushing this year. When something's happening um, in the community, be there. Don't call people after the fact. Don't wait for statements. Go there. Talk to people. Build connections. Because that's what it means to do local journalism, to do community reporting. It's not just to talk about what's happening, but to talk with the people that are making the news and understand why they're doing what they're doing and really get to know them as community members. And it just makes for more informed coverage all around. And it makes for, I think, more passionate, more relatable coverage too. It just, it's better in every way to be on the ground when things are happening. Drake, Tyler, thank you so much for joining us this week. Thank you for having us, Gavin. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. It's now 6.49 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. On tonight's Wildlife Weekly, WORT feature contributor Jackie Sandberg takes a look at night jars and other unique birds in the region. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today's topic is going to be about goat suckers. Ooh, that sounds really cool. Actually, we're going to talk about different species that are in a very particular family, and this is going to be our night jars because we've been seeing a lot of them come through the Wildlife Center. This is the exact time of year when migration is happening for a lot of our aerial insectivores and so many other species, but it's really common for us in these couple of months to see certain species come through in mixed flocks, but night jars are so, so, so cool. I cannot emphasize that enough. They are probably one of my favorite birds. Oh, sorry, I guess it's more of a category of birds, but for me, it's the whippoorwill. And whippoorwills are beautiful, really neat, cryptic, camouflaged birds that you probably have not seen. You might have heard them, though. So if you're in Wisconsin, and I always think about Spring Green, Wisconsin, because I think about going to, like, the American Players Theater out towards the west of our state and hearing them at night when there are night plays going on. Also, Shakespeare at night in the middle of an outdoor theater, that's pretty cool. But you can hear the whippoorwills, and whippoorwill is the weirdest sounding name, right? So it's fitting for a weird bird. So the whippoorwill is actually named because (laughs) of how they sound. So if you think back to your like primary school, high school, you know, onomatopoeia, that means it's named after the way that its song sounds. So whippoorwill, whippoorwill, whippoorwill. And that's the only time you'll ever hear me try to do a bird call. But it's been popularized recently with even video games, actually. So you'll hear whippoorwills a lot in background sounds. So I think of them most famously and recently in Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. You hear whippoorwills all the time. And it's such a neat sound that it's, I don't know what it is, but it's like iconic almost. So we've been seeing whippoorwills 
whippoorwills come through mixed flocks with the other night jars. So we also have the Chuck's Wills Widow, which is another species that's very uncommon, I think, to see here in Wisconsin. I think there's less of them around. They actually have much lower pitched voices, but look very similar to our whippoorwills. And then our other one is going to be the common nighthawk. So I would say that Dane County Humane Society sees the most of common nighthawks versus the other species. And that's because the common nighthawk is pretty common. So these are species, all three of them. And yes, there are more species all around the world, but we're going to talk about the common nighthawk, whippoorwill, and the Chuckswill's widow. The common nighthawk is one of those that is found all around the U.S. And the eastern whippoorwill is what it sounds like is more on the east side. I just say whippoorwill, but we're really talking about the eastern whippoorwill, which is split between that of the Mexican whippoorwill, uh, which is more to the west. And that's just based on some genetic differences and some sound differences in the color of their eggs. But the common nighthawk is one of those very large kind of birds. And I say large because they look so much bigger than the other birds that they're with, which is the, you know, chimney swift populations and some other swallows. So we saw them the other night when we released five of our baby chimney swifts back into the wild. So exciting. And we had a huge population of swifts that were going into a chimney over, for those of you who are local Madisonians, over by the Cherokee Heights Middle School. There's a really beautiful chimney there that are very commonly filled with swifts during this time of year. And so when we were watching these just beautiful vortexes of swifts flying around, going down into the chimney, we could see the common nighthawks because they look huge compared to the swifts. Now, they're more of a medium-sized bird, but I call them big because of, again, just the way that they stand out. Common nighthawks are different from whippoorwills because they have this bright white striping band underneath their wings. So when you're looking up in the sky and you're seeing this bird fly around, maybe at dusk, if you see the white striping underneath this kind of blackish brownish silhouette, it's probably a common nighthawk. If it's a whippoorwill, it won't have those white stripes. So that's one big difference, but they are otherwise just like the slender kind of imagine an ice cream cone, but like a really large size where you've got this rounded head and this pointy little end to the body, pretty pointy wings. And they're all brown and they just look like camouflage. So bark on a tree, the mixed browns and tans and a little bit of white and some black and they have beautiful whiskers. But the coolest part about them is that their mouths are massive. When I say massive, I mean they have this itty bitty tiny beak at the end. And when we get one in that we might have to feed or evaluate for an exam, you open up that itty bitty tiny beak at the end and boom, you see this huge mouth that's just like gaping and giant and pink. And so it's just so neat. It's like they're just the type of birds that you just you never know what to expect. It's like you see this bird, you think, oh, it's going to be a simple bird. Nope, it's not simple. It's got a lot of really cool features. <laughs> so that's why they're my favorite is that they just kind of aren't what you'd think that they are. So, you know, never judge a bird by its cover or book, whatever. Anyway, really, really cool bird birds. So they are flying around at night in these mixed flocks of other species, catching insects on the wing, opening those giant mouths, flying in. They only eat flying insects. So that's really neat. Dawn and dusk, usually that cavernous mouth is just going to just open up and then swallow a whole bunch of insects and they'll eat insect clouds. So we like them because they get rid of the insects. And then we also, when we're talking about our whippoorwills, 
We're thinking about them as being pretty much the same, except they're more cryptic. So like I said, you'll see them, but honestly, you might see them more often sitting in a tree or during nesting because they nest on the ground and they only put two eggs down on a little gravel spot somewhere, a lot of times on rooftops. So we see them a lot in downtown Madison sometimes. People actually almost step on them. It's such a weird thing because they don't build a nest. They don't really go anywhere. They just sit there and hope to incubate all of their babies. So because they're camouflaged and kind of, you know, frozen in that spot and they don't want predators to be attracted to them, they really won't move away from their eggs unless you really get way too close. So that might be the only other time that you'd see them aside from migration, which is happening now. So look in the crevices of trees. I've seen some sitting in like the crook of a tree and just blending right in. So, you know, you're you're really probably going to see them in flight, dawn and dusk, and you'll see them catching insects. So go outside this time of year, go find some spots where there's some known swifts, otherwise some really good bug marshy areas, and maybe you'll get the chance to see a glimpse of them um, before they're gone because they go to South America and some go to Central America and Mexico. But they are probably one of my favorite and most amazing birds that I can think of here in Wisconsin. And that's just my personal opinion. So we do see them a lot at the Wildlife Center. We do admit them for rehabilitation. They do get injured a lot by being hit by cars at dawn and dusk. Occasionally a window strike, but most often it's going to be being hit by a moving vehicle or being grabbed by a dog or cat or something if they're sitting on the ground. So if you do find one, take a photo because sometimes that can help us evaluate the animal better and definitely give us a call if you think it's sick or injured from, you know, its migration. It's definitely very, very prominent right now. So be on the lookout for them. Our phone number is 608-287-3235. And otherwise, if you're trying to figure out what the difference is, just look for those white wing bars. And I really hope you get the chance to see one. Otherwise, sit down at night and listen for that whip-a-will sound because it's really amazing. Thanks for listening today here on WORT. This has been Wildlife Weekly. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was John K. Wilson. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, Gavin Escott, and Hewan Lim. Super Dave Lawrence engineered the show. Faye Parks produced this newscast. And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WRT. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful, and stay up to date with the WRT Local News podcast and subscribe wherever else you follow your news podcasts. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Up next is Spanish Language News with the Nuestro Patio. Good night. Thank <laughs> you.